This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget you can get in touch at any time. You can email me, matt at times.radio, particularly if you want to get in touch about dogs. Because uh, on the podcast today, we're asking, has Britain got too many dogs? And if we have, what should we be doing about it? Government policy, local council policy. Should you be fined if you're stopped and searched and you don't have a poo bag on you when you're out with your dog? That's what one council's doing. We're talking about that on the podcast in just a moment. But first, as ever, on a Tuesday, it's Finkelvich. Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich, with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich, on Times Radio. Yes, it's a very good morning to Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, morning Danny. Morning, and morning. after a brief appearance in the studio last week, he's now back in his bunker. Morning, David Abonovich. <laughs> back in the bunker. Yeah, I, I will come in again. I, I, I threaten you. Oh, good. Well, I look forward to that. It's nice to see all of your, what do I call it, gubbins in the background again on your Zoom, which, as you pointed out, are called books. Uh, let's, uh, let's, we'll, we'll, in a moment, we'll, we'll, um, I've got some good news for you, David, and I, I got an answer of sorts out of Richard Tice for you, so we'll do that, uh, in a moment. First, let's talk about, let's talk about the World Cup and the politics of the World Cup. In particular, um, Tony Blair, uh, says all the protests at human rights in Qatar risk going over the top. Uh, he says allies, uh, he says they are allies and it's not sensible to disrespect them. Is he right, Danny? No, no, I don't think he is actually. So I am a bit uncomfortable with um, with Gary Lineker deciding to produce a political monologue at the beginning of the match. I don't think that's really the place for it. And um, you know, part of his claim that he can say whatever he likes politically is that that doesn't. He's a sports commentator and doesn't bleed over. And I don't think he should combine the two. Um, but I don't think that Qatar can bid for a World Cup and win it without expecting the rest of the world to use it as an opportunity to point out mm. those things they don't like. So if you are going to have a world tournament, you are going to have some countries in it, and sometimes they will host the tournament, who don't have the same human rights uh, position or uh, position on something like gay rights as we do. And indeed, when we had the World Cup in 1966, homosexuality was illegal in Britain. So, um, you know, social mores change uh, and places have different attitudes. Uh, but that 
doesn't mean that Tony Blair's right in thinking you shouldn't talk about it because when they took that tournament on, they were giving the world the invitation to talk about it. And personally, I can't, I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect people to sort of stand by and not complain about something that is an egregious um, human rights violation. Um, David, what do you think about this? Because it's an interesting point that Tony Blair tried to make, that they are supposed to be allies. And I suppose the, the problem with allies is that, is that, you know, sometimes you have to tell friends difficult things. Uh, there's, there's a real kind of confusion, I think, among some of the defenders of the Qataris about this. On the one hand, they say... Um, uh, it's not that we shouldn't put this down this uh, to if you like a kind of uh, a culture which is not like ours on the other hand they say you should respect the culture because it's different from ours and it's quite, a, quite it reminds me very much of a, an interview i heard about kind of 25 years ago a woman was talking about her, her boyfriend who uh, had gone had got into a fight and broken the nose of this person and broken the legs of another person she said at the end um the thing about it is you've got to understand it's just his way it's just his way and you thought hmm Okay, uh, but it's not a very good way, uh, and um, it's not a way that I can uh, that I can admire or can get get down there with. The problem with the Qatari World Cup is that it was bought uh, and bribed through FIFA, that it should never have been there for footballing reasons in the first place, and it just was an indicator that at the moment, in some parts of our lives, money can buy you absolutely anything, and a lot of people are revolting against that idea. A lot of people are, but a lot of people are. And then alongside that is the particular characteristics of a Qatar as a dictatorship um, which restricts human rights and not incidentally just gay rights, by the way. There are no political rights in Qatar either, just so that we're kind of clear about this. And more to the point, it exists on the back of migrant workers who have very few rights uh, and who make up the vast majority of the people actually living in Qatar. Those are the points. Uh, and that's not, it's not not really good enough for Tony Blair to turn around and say, "Oh yeah, I know," but there are there are, are there are allies, and it's just their way. Um, it's a not a good way. And as Danny says, you're going to get the World Cup, etc. Then everybody's going to tell you that they who don't think it's a good way that it's not a good way, and they don't particularly love being associated with it, and they don't particularly want to be um, rolled out as being somehow or other big supporters of this as a way of life. And the point that you make, Danny, about um... Gary Lineker, and as it sort of applies to all, you can either have no politics, you know, we are just doing sports, so we're not going to get involved in politics. But then you do get in politics, you then have to be held accountable to that. And that that applies, you yeah. know, whether you're David Beckham or Gary Lineker. Look, it's just a confusion in his argument. I, I, I've accepted the idea that because he's a sports commentator, he does have the right um, to make political comments, which he makes, which are quite pointed on lots of political issues. Uh, he's, you know, he's a part, he's a partisan of a of a certain political position, quite identifiable one. Uh, and I've accepted it on the grounds that you know he's a footballer and a football commentator, and for most of the time, it doesn't matter. Therefore, what his political views are. But if he then wants to express political views on the football uh, and on the football tournaments, then I think it's more of a problem uh, with the BBC. Of course. You then get into an even more difficult problem, which is that what issue, what issues are uh, political ones for debate, and what do we regard as baseline human rights values, uh, and are yeah. those you know, and and does the B, can the BBC be expected to uh, to be neutral on baseline human rights values? So it's quite a complicated the, issue. The, the, then comes a point because he's been quite outspoken on refugees. And said, you know, if there was a match in France or Italy, would it be okay for Gary Lineker to comment on their refugee policy? 
I don't believe that I, I don't believe that the BBC, uh, by and large, should be making political comments in the sports programme from a sports I... presenter who had, takes a political stance. It's just a confusion of their role. However, I do think making political programmes, having this featured on the news, having debates about yeah. it, um, I then don't agree with Tony Blair that there's been too much of that yeah, about yeah. it. So it, in my position is a bit of a balanced one. Isn't that isn't part of the problem here that the, inevitably when you get something like the World Cup, the 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 tone of the coverage is celebratory, um, and so what you get is a kind of what a marvelous job the Qataris have done putting on this World Cup. Look at these fabulous stadiums. Look at this fabulous. It's an exciting World Cup. It's not all nil nil draws, three three, you know, etc. So you get this kind of tone, which inevitably kind of suggests actually the sports washing works. The Qataris put on one of the World Cup, i.e. we can make the association, even if it's not made um, overt, that the Qataris are good at this kind of thing and it's been a good World Cup and we can all kind of be happy with it. And I dare say that's why Lineker thought it needed to be counterbalanced with a statement from him, with all the awkwardness that Danny suggests yeah. that has. And I, suppose and so that... I, I, I think maybe the answer to this is to tone down the celebration side of it a little <laughs> bit, uh, 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 rather than nephesis. In that case, you wouldn't have to have well, this kind of counterbalance. I, I just think people, I, I think it's a bit patronising as well, I think it is, and I also think it's kind of trying to suggest they're not really celebrating the World Cup by kind of distancing himself, so it's it's a little bit about showing how kind of virtuous he is rather than uh, commenting on the, on the situation in Qatar. Most people can make a, a difference, uh, draw a line between uh, watching the football game and what they think of the regime in Qatar. And I, I think, it, interestingly, that's why I do disagree with Tony, but I think it's important that, the, that sports washing be counteracted with uh, robust commentary. But I I don't happen to think the place for it is in the sports game from the sports commentators. Yeah. But may maybe I'm making too prissy a point. But also, I suppose the point that you both make about sports washing, it would be unlikely that there is a single person who is watching a single game who is not aware that Qatar is not a very nice place, who may not have known that before. So actually, this might have backfired on Qatar a little bit. Yeah, look. I, about debate no, that's I mean, I, I think I think one of the reasons why my, my father uh, used to go to countries behind the Iron Curtain, who'd after all imprisoned him at one point in his life, uh, to give academic speeches, and that's because he believed there was something to be gained in the long run uh, by uh, the the relationship that he would then build up with East German scientists, with Russian scientists, with 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 uh, with because he thought science was universal, and lots of people think that's true about sports too, and I think this is an opportunity to prove that's true have a sports tournament that opens up Qatar to this precise yeah. type of criticism and, and makes make, makes it clear that there's a world outside yeah, yeah, their yeah. own which is which doesn't accept their behaviour. Yeah, that might not this be... Will, this, will, this will sound ironic, really, but I don't think that that actually works. I think your father wasn't right about that. Um, although he was right about everything else and obviously was a splendid parent, otherwise we wouldn't be looking at you in the way you are. But um, uh, I mean, it, actually, these regimes take enormous comfort from the fact that they that these links are maintained. Um, they really do, and they make it a major part of their kind of propaganda push, and, and that's a fact. Now, that doesn't mean you're always wrong to do it, because you know uh, we can also think of individual um, connections which were cultivated, which allowed, for example some people beyond, behind the Iron Curtain to actually come over eventually to the West. And if it hadn't been for those links, probably they wouldn't. Um, uh, but nevertheless, on the whole, 
um, uh, regimes uh, who regard themselves, who have been regarded as being such, such outside the mainstream, very much value such recognition. Well, his view was that the international scientific relationships that he produced and uh, the development of international science and the inclusion of those countries in in the community would ultimately open those countries up. And who's to tell whether that was right or not? I, I I think he was probably more right than wrong, but I, you know, it isn't an open debate. Uh, well, we'll move on in a sec. We'll talk about um, Keir Starmer's class war, according to the front page of the Daily Mail today. Just some breaking news that's <laughs> broken in the last uh, uh, few minutes. China's ambassador to the UK has been summoned to the Foreign Office amid this diplomatic row of the arrest and alleged beating of a BBC journalist covering those COVID protests in Shanghai. So the UK government summoning China's ambassador to the Foreign Office. Uh, for sort of diplomatic uh, dressing down. It's just been announced. Still got Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich here. Well, uh, you might not have seen it, but the front page of the Daily Mail yesterday, fury over Starmer class war on private schools. Then today, Keir's class war threat to 200 private schools. So I gave him a spot the difference to see exactly what the uh, how the story's moved on. They now claim up to 200 private schools will close if Labour scraps their tax breaks. Uh, there's nothing more than the Daily, the Daily Mail likes more, uh, David, than be able to put class war in a headline. It's a sort of <laughs> last Corbyn-era policy which, which Starmer's hanging on to. Um, Jeremy Hunt quite pointedly, you know, ruled it out of the dispatch box. He said he looked at it and decided not to do it. This is... Uh, <laughs> the, the, the private schools can call themselves charities. They, get, they basically pay less tax. Um, yeah. Is this, a, is this a winning campaign for the Daily Mail or... Or is, or is private schooling now so expensive that actually it's not the squeeze middle class they think it is? <laughs> um, it, it, it's interesting, this, because, as we know, the, the classic figure is that 7% of uh, uh, school kids go to private schools, uh, yet they uh, constitute 31% of the students say, at Oxford University, about four and a half times representation. Um, but even parents, uh, but parents at private schools have more recently admitted, by and large, that it's not really the academic achievements of the school which, they, which they're buying into, but the social club which uh, is formed at the school by the pupils there and which... Uh, stands them in good stead in later life and there's not a single one of us who hasn't observed the passage through life of private and public school kids uh in not least in our own professions who hasn't seen that at work in one way or another i mean it's it's just obvious and it's in all the statistics and so the question i mean from a point of view of um equity there really isn't very much of a reason why some of the bigger uh, uh, high fee charging private schools require the sorts of charitable exemptions or the charitable status which they're given. Um, their fees are astronomical. Their facilities are preposterous absolutely preposterous you know kind of olympic sized swimming pools rowing lakes and all this kind of, and all this kind of stuff uh, and justified by relatively mean levels of bursaries to people outside which they make an enormous amount of fuss about uh, and so on and hugely backed up by um uh, by by students who come from abroad uh, from extremely wealthy families and plut uh, uh, and plutocrats abroad so morally there's not very much of a re good reason for not uh, 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 taking away charitable status, and there's quite a good reason for uh, imposing VAT uh, in this area as well. It has to be said, there are some private schools that don't fit this mould. They are people. They are schools that do different things to the to, to the mainstream. Um, uh, that do experimental things or cater for very kind of particular needs. They're also private, etc. And there might be an argument for maintaining charitable status uh, for them in, in, in moral terms. The big problem with this is. Um, 
uh, even if you conceive that it might get you a billion quid, and I think that's fairly kind of uh, optimistic, what it creates is a gigantic row about education off the mainstream of what you need to do about most kids' education. Mm. Uh, and that so it's the problem of the political diversion that it represents that has really put uh, governments uh, in the past, Labour governments, that is, uh, off from doing anything about it. Not really the kind of the aspirations of the middle class. As for the Conservative Party, well, of course, we know that the vast majority of the cabinet, for instance, are both educated at private schools and have their kids educated yeah. at private schools. Um, they are not going to be in favour of this. Uh, just briefly, Danny, because we want to make sure we've got time for Richard Tice. Um, what do you think about this? Is it is is does this class war stuff work, or is Keir Starmer no. more on the side of so, the public? So is that, it doesn't work for a, politically for a hilarious reason. When this campaign began, all the people who sent their children to private schools voted uh, conservative, and therefore this had no impact. Now I suspect most, almost all of them vote Labour because most people who send their pri <laughs> their children to private schools live in London, uh, and um, they the. Uh, it's very, very biased towards London, where there is a large proportion. Of, and London's going to vote overwhelmingly Labour. So I suspect the political effect of this will be small, except as a symbolic issue. Yeah. And I think as a symbolic issue, it's not a particularly good issue yeah. for, for uh, Keir Starmer, but nowhere near the issue the Daily Mail is trying to make it uh, to be. I also happen to think, by the way, that private education is pretty much a waste of money, and I didn't do that for any of my children. Uh, very good. Right, look, finally then, David, uh, last week you wanted, you were trying to find out how many members Reform yeah. UK have got. So we had Richard Tice, the leader, on yesterday, and I asked him. Yeah, I've told you, we've, we've taken on a lot of new members, over 7,000. It changes by the hour, and we're delighted with that. So that's... But what's the total? That, if you've got more than Plaid, if you've got more than Plaid, Plaid say they've got 10,000 members, they told the House of Commons. If you've got more than 10,000. Uh, I I can, can can confirm that we've got way more than uh, than Plaid that you just mentioned. Have you got more than way the Lib more. Dems? They're on seventy four thousand. Uh, that's all I'm going to give you. So I, I did okay. try, David. So we at least we now know it's between ten and seventy four thousand. Are you satisfied with that answer, David? Oh, he's gone. He's been I'll dumbfounded. Try, he's been dumbfounded. Yeah, that's why he wants his total straightforwardness and honesty in politics. How many members you got? I can't tell you. Um, uh, 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 having said they've got 7,000 members changing by the day, what, to 6,000? I mean, anyway, 7,000 more members. He could hardly say they had less than 10,000 members now, could he? Because what that would have said is they only had 3,000 before the 7,000 were added. And I'll tell you what, Matt, and he can kind of contradict me if he wants. I don't believe him. I don't even believe the 7,000. I think it's a fib. Daniel Finkelstein and David Iwanovich there. And of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Danny on a Wednesday, David on a Thursday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, has Britain got too many dogs? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, so they say that if you want a friend in politics, get a dog. Which might explain why Rishi Sunak has got Nova, the fox-red Labrador retriever. Jeremy Hunt next door has got Poppy the Labrador. Of course, got Poppy the Golden Retriever. We're not alone. Estimates say that more than 10 million dogs now in the UK. That means for every seven people, there's a dog. But is that too many? And what impact is all this having on public policy? How do councils cope with the mountains of dog poo? Should you be fined for not carrying poo bags? Well, there's one council that thinks so. Should landlords be allowed to say no to pets? How tough should we be on dog nappers? Can you afford the food and treats in a cost-of-living crisis? And who looks after your pandemic pet when you're quite um, uh, quite predictably told to go back to the office? Well, I've been running a poll on Twitter to find out, has Britain got too many dogs? 53% say no, we haven't. And 47%... Uh, say yes, we have. Let me know what you think. You can text me 8722. Start your message with the word Times. Uh, tweet me at Times Radio. So it seems like so many things. The country is split down the middle. And for every person who loves a pooch, there's someone else who's had enough of hounds. It comes up a lot on the show, this issue of dogs. When we ask celebrities what they would do if they ruled the world. So here is comedian Simon Bodkin, the naturalist Chris Packham, and the comedian Shaparak Korsandi. All dogs on leads all times. <gasps> no. What about my lovely dog? She likes to go running around and going in the water and everything. Everyone loves their own little doggy, don't they? Everyone, th- I'm out in the park, these dogs like jumping up on my little boy. He's, he's, he's scared of dogs. And they're jumping up on him, licking his face, humping his leg. I'm like to the owner, can you get your dog off my kid? Every time he's just being friendly, he, my kid's crying. One thing I've got a real bugbear about is there are lots of nature reserves in the UK where dogs are allowed under the spurious thing that they're under control. Well, m- my poodles are sometimes controllable, sometimes not. That's the nature of uh, of the way that they live. A nature reserve is for nature, not our domestic pets, and we'd have to find somewhere else to walk them. If I come across somebody else's dog poo, I sometimes pick it up. Wow. I know, it's weird, isn't it? It's like changing someone else's child's nappy. 
um, but I I kind of do, and it feels really um, dirty. It's about it's about a thousand times worse <laughs> picking up your own dog litter, um, dog mess. But I just feel if you've got poo bags, then and you see a poo, then why not just quickly scoop it up and put it away? And that's one of the big, uh, the Paul of the Sea challenges we're going to look at in this half an hour. That was Simon Brodkin, Chris Packham and Chaparak Corsani. Well, joining me now in the studio is Anna Webb, dog, dog nutrition and behaviour expert and the host of the podcast of Dogs Life. Hi, Anna. Hi, Matt. Thanks no, for having me. No, thank you for coming in. Let, let's start with the big question that we're asking. Has Britain got too many dogs? Look, I am such a dog lover. Some people say I am part dog. Um, and <laughs> I actually think that potentially, Matt, we could have too many dogs now in this country, only because I think a lot of people did take on dogs in the pandemic. Maybe not all for the right reasons. You know, yes, dogs are our gateway to the outdoors, as Chris Packham was saying there. You know, they are our constant companions. They are our stress busters. But have you got the right experience, the lifestyle, or the accommodation to really take on a dog. And what we're seeing now, okay, post-pandemic, people are going back to work. We're seeing dog walkers. I live close to, to the Hackney Marshes. Yesterday alone, I saw packs of dog walkers, all with about six dogs per person, which is a worry because I don't believe anyone really can control six dogs at once. So a pack of 12 dogs with two humans. Um, you know, in that clip there, you know, we're talking about dogs jumping up on people, scaring children children, being intimidating. I'm seeing a lot more of that. There's research out there that says that the pandemic puppy generation, 54% of which has no recall, because of course, we couldn't train and socialise dogs That's a really in this good time. Point. You couldn't go somewhere. And no, exactly. So the, exactly, Matt. Yeah. And um, in terms of like the, 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 the actual increase, so um, there was some YouGov point for the charity PDSA it said 27% of adults uh, have a dog. At an estimated 10.2 million pet dogs. That's up from 9.6 million in 2021. My guess is 2018, 2019 was probably even less. And I remember before we got our dog, it was before the pandemic, and we spent about six months mulling over, could we cope? How would we manage? You know, leaving the dog, dog walkers uh, and all of that. And yet people just essentially a bit bored during lot. It's one thing buying a hot tub <laughs> or, uh, you know, something for the garden, which you then forget all about. But this is a commitment for, you know, 10 years probably. Or more, let's more, hope. More, yeah, yeah. You know? fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this is it, you see, and I really think people underestimated the commitment that yeah. dogs really are. You know, there we all were. We were all, you know, locked up, uh, glued to social media and the internet, and therein, therein is part of the problem. Yeah. You know, popularisation on social media let people think, oh, gosh, if I get a dog, my life will be happier. I'll smile like all these lovely dog people. All these other people I'll, with dogs. Uh, yeah, I'll enjoy the great outdoors, you know, for my hour-long exercise size a day, I can, you know, feel normal outside with, with a dog. But I don't think people realised exactly what the, the commitment was, the training, you know, teaching dogs to be left alone. That was difficult for people because you couldn't really. So separation anxiety is soaring, you know, in yeah. the UK. Um, and again, the training and the socialisation, really. And what happened was people... 
you know, a lot of people have been duped. Um, a lot of the unscrupulous, which runs in every sector of the world, took advantage yeah. of everybody being cooped up. And people started to sell dogs online. People started to buy dogs online because it was the only way they could buy a dog. So the wonderful legislation that came in just before the pandemic called Lucy's Law, which aimed to stop puppy farm dogs being bought because puppy farming is big business. You know, in the Republic of Ireland, they estimate it's worth about 200 billion euros a year. Over 66,000 dogs in 2021 um, came in. They were smuggled in from Eastern Europe and the Republic of Ireland to flood internet sites to unsuspecting owners that bought puppies yeah. that were sickly or ill, which didn't help. Um, and of course, Lucy's Law aimed to prevent all of that. But of course, it couldn't really work because people weren't allowed to go to places to see the puppy with the mother, which was the point of that law. So in a way, you know, the pandemic has affected us all in so many different ways, but really not least dogs. It has, absolutely. We'll talk about the about the cost of living crisis as well, because obviously yeah. food, food is uh, really expensive. But let's, we're going to have to talk about poo, Anna. Yeah, no, bring it on. Um, so, and I was particularly drawn to, there's a story over the weekend, Hammersmith and Fulham Council are holding a consultation on whether to fine dog walkers who can't produce a poo bag on demand. Residents could face a £100 penalty and even be taken to court if they fail to pay within a certain time frame. So let's bring in uh, Times Radio's very own Alexis Conran. Uh, Alexis, you presented a Channel 5 documentary called Britain's Dog Poo Scandal. I did. What was I the scandal that. that you uncovered? <laughs> well, look, the scandal was how bad we are at picking up our dog poo. And I speak as a dog owner. There were some uh, misconceptions that I think a lot of dog owners have about dog poo. Uh, and I had them as well. I uh, always assumed, for example, that dog poo is biodegradable. It's natural. If you just don't pick it up in a forest, then it'll just biodegrade. It's nonsense. It, uh, dog poo is extremely dangerous. It's it's hazardous. Okay. It, it's, it can have some really bad bacteria in it. It can have, uh, it's a risk. It's got parasites. It can do untold damage. So in our show, we filmed with a rugby club. They play in this nice big rugby field and some people walk their dogs and sometimes when they don't pick up their mess and rugby gets played on the field. Well, Matt, I don't need to explain what happens next, but it can be really serious. If you get it on a cut or if you get it in your eye, you can lose your eyesight. And we spoke to people who had lost their eyesight because dog poo had got in there because they were playing in a field. It's something, it's a parasite that causes a condition called toxocariasis and you can lose your eyesight and the other misconception that a lot of dog owners have is that if you put it in a bag and hang it off a tree which is the most irritating thing you can do <laughs> and then leave it there so it magically gets taken away by the poo fairy or whoever they expect to find that that's all okay it's still illegal if you don't put it in a bin and i have to say Again, putting it in a bag, you can be causing even more danger to wildlife. So all sorts of wildlife, yeah. particularly sheep, want like they get attracted to the smell and the bag. They can eat it and they can die from it. So we really need to get our act together. And the excuse that there aren't enough bins or there aren't enough bags, it's just not an excuse. You're breaking the law and you're leaving hazardous material out in the street. 
I don't know. Really, I, I, I genuinely don't understand the thing about hanging it from a tree. Uh, no, it it defies, <laughs> defies me as well. But you know, I mean, that was so so important to say all of that. Now, I must say, Matt, you had a dog before the pandemic, your yeah. poppy. Um, now, I know from owning a dog back in two thousand and two as a grown up in London for the first time, there was a lot of poop around then. But a lot of campaigning, a lot of local authorities got behind it. I know Islington had this thing called the Dog Squad, um, and they patrol parks and they would you know get people on the spot for not picking up and really by the end of 2019 there was hardly any poo around you know it really had got a lot better now I can't believe how bad it is it's shocking and I just feel you know it's a symptom of how irresponsible we are with our dogs at the moment you know on on a number of levels not just picking up poo picking up poo is a symptom of of something much bigger and that's what worries me but every day I manage to tread in some particularly at the moment because of all the leaves and the poops often under the leaves yeah I know exactly and it is horrible um, we had loads. I've had loads of messages about this. Uh, Caro says on Twitter: On very cold winter dog walks, I tie up my dog's poo tightly in a poo bag and use it as a hand warmer. Oh, <laughs> oh no! So there's that. Look, um, let's bring in Donna now. Donna Fuller is a parish councillor in Milton Keynes, uh, and because of like how things are divvied up between county, district, and parish, it, it falls to parish councils, doesn't it, Donna, to to deal with the dog poo situation? How bad is it with you? Okay, so. Morning, everybody, firstly. Um, it doesn't actually... It's not a statutory duty of a community slash parish council. However, we take we take that responsibility here in Worcester, in my small part of the world, yes. Um, so we provide dog bins and we provide around about 100,000 biodegradable dog poo bags a year to our residents to come and collect. And from that, we collect or our, our register, uh, register collector collects around 60 tonnes of dog waste per year. So to imagine that, if you think about 10 African elephants, that's around <laughs> the amount of dog waste that we collect. And our provider takes it. And as, as has already been mentioned, it is a hazardous waste, so it's taken and it's burnt. So there is a lot of dog waste out there, without a doubt. And, and has and it gone up? Are you dealing with more than you were pre-pandemic? Um, slightly less. Uh, it was around 70 tonnes um, pre-pandemic and um, during the pandemic. It's dropped off a bit, but now it's steadily rising again. And do you have to pay? Does the council have to pay for that? We do. We do. We've got a, a very good provider. We we've, we get a very competitive rate. Um, but it's very important to our residents here in Woofton that we do our best to keep walkways and children's play areas. Uh, uh, I don't know if you know Milton Keynes, but it's a very green city um, with lots of paths, lots of dog walks. So in our part of the world, we, we endeavour to encourage our residents to do the right thing by providing the free dog bags um, and to put them in the bins that are provided on yeah. what we, we regularly check that are regular dog walking areas. Um, and, and, and that's how we do it. It's, it's a... It's a difficult one because, you know, dogs are quite a uh, provocative subject. I mean, I know that during the pandemic, for many of the residents locally, the, the, the companionship that they provided was a massive help to their mental health during lockdown. So I understand that. But I think that, I think that having a dog, you have to be as cle- clever with your choice of dog as you do with any other purchase that you would make um, and make sure that it fits into your lifestyle. That's a really good point when you're... When you're... 
uh, picking and choosing. Uh, what do you think, uh, Don, about this idea of finding people if they don't have... If someone's out with a dog and they, they can't produce a poo bag, you should be fined £100. Now, that, again, that's a really difficult one. I can't speak on behalf of the, the authority that are, are thinking of going down that consultation route. They must have some very um, 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 compelling reasons to, to do that. Yeah. However, um, it, as with anything... It's about encouraging responsibility first, I think, rather than going down the route of fining. But that's my personal opinion, I have to say. What do you think, um, Alexis, if you've looked into this as an issue? We have, uh, when we did the programme for Channel 5, we put a massive freedom of information request to over 271 councils. Uh, that uh, They actually replied, and we found that 34% have not issued a single fine for dog fouling since 2019. So that just sort of tells you the story that councils are very stretched. They don't really have the uh, the bandwidth to be going out and asking people whether or not they've got dog poo bags on them or, or actually fining people should they have enough evidence to say, well, look, you didn't pick it up, here's a fine. So that is a problem, but I don't think I agree with... Look, I've been caught out going out with a dog and not having a poo bag. And what you do is you ask another dog walker and you you get a poo bag. So I don't think not having one is good enough reason. I think not picking it up yeah. and not putting it in the bin. And again, I cannot stress enough that you can put it in any bin that you find. A lot of people think, oh, I need to put it in a special bin. No, you don't. Any bin you can put dog poo bags in. And hanging it off a tree, once again, Please stop doing that. We're ruining <laughs> the countryside for everybody. 100%. And also, I, I agree with 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 Shappy Corsandi, uh, who you played earlier. I have started since making that documentary picking up other poo. Because oh, it's too much. I can't. I can't. I can't Matt, get my head around Matt, it. Think it's of it, so think weird. Of it this way. Think of it this way: you are you are walking past a biohazard. No, I know. I that know. can cause damage to other wildlife, kids, anybody. Meg's just been in touch saying most irritating is London is people put their poo bags at the base of trees or on the pavement. The bin people do not pick them up. And I don't blame them. Just stop it. Inconsiderate dong owners. Or you don't think it's a problem, leave your bag in front of your own house. It's a good point, Meg. Uh, uh, Alexis, really good to speak to you. Alexis Conrad there from Times Radio. You can always catch uh, Alexis uh, one till four on Saturdays and Sundays. Donna, good to speak to you again as well. I've just realised, Donna, you, remind me where you're from? Milton Keynes. Yeah, but where's the, where's the area? Wolfton. Wolfton. <laughs> See, we just we don't just throw this together. Donna, really good to speak to you. Uh, Donna Fuller there, a parish councillor in Wolfton. We are asking the question, has Britain got too many dogs? Anna Webb from the podcast, The Dog's Life is Still With Me in the Studio. Uh, Anna, let's talk about uh, dog walking because lots of people got dogs during the pandemic. They've then been told to go back, despite thinking they were going to work from home forever, they've now had to go back to the office uh, and dog walkers, are there any rules at all governing who can set themselves up as a dog walker? Uh, the fr frightening thing is, no, not really. It is a completely unregulated part of the dog world community. Different boroughs um, and different areas of the country, I'm sure, have suggested limits of how many dogs you mm. can walk at once. Um, the average one is three. You know, three dogs per one person is deemed safe. But, you know, unfortunately, I see many, many more being walked by one person. And the worry is, if an incident were to happen, how can you, as one person, control six dogs? You know, and there's... 
been a lot of stories of dogs being stolen, dogs bolting, you know, being hit by cars. There was one incident in the summer where a van was stolen that had all the dogs in it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, so it's something you've really got to assess the person, grill them, ask how much experience they've got with dogs and so on. Uh, it's interesting. Yes, yeah, so West Northamptonshire Council introduced a public space protection order at the start of this month, banning anyone from walking more than four dogs at a time if they're caught breaking the rules. They get hit with a hundred pound fine. Uh, I suppose the thing is that um, this maybe the law needs to catch up with with where we are now. That so many more people have dogs, so many more people setting themselves up in these roles. Not all necessarily the best of intentions or the commitment to doing it properly. They're just trying to make money money quickly. Um, let's move on and talk a bit about as well about because the alternative obviously to dog walks, you take them for doggy daycare. Uh, but then uh, there are uh, interesting issues around that. Current legislation uh, requires that doggy daycare has to have six square metres of space for each dog. But that's making things particularly difficult for uh, doggy daycare businesses. It's even been raised in the House of Commons in a recent debate. This is the Labour MP Meg Hillier uh, brought up the problems with the, the space limits for doggy daycare. This is in the House of Commons. Great. I mean, animal welfare is something that we're all very concerned about. I wouldn't want to see dogs crammed into unnecessarily small spaces. But in the inner city, in Hackney South and Shoreditch, this is just too large for many urban daycares where space is just is often at a premium. It's often impossible for those businesses to be viable given high rents and overheads, yet dog owners need somewhere for their dogs to go. Yes, they can have dog walkers, but many of my constituents live in small flats where the dog left home alone for much of the day wouldn't be in a great setting anyway. So actually a dog daycare, sometimes with smaller space standards, could be a better option than the other alternative options. That was Labour MP Meg Hillier. Well, in her constituency is Adita Secura, who runs Hairy Hounds in East London, has been lobbying ministers for a change to the le legislation. And Adita joins me now. Morning. Uh, good morning. Hi. Thank you for having me. No, it's good to have you. With um, what would you like to see happen to the law on uh, on how many dogs can be uh, held in a doggy daycare? I think it's a more complex question. I think it's not about relaxing the rules. I think it's about looking at the legislation um more in a complex way um at the moment um the six square meters um advantages put advantages on the daycares that are operating more on a raw uh, areas and what happens dogs are often being uh, transported over there they have a large fields to run around but um the quality of the fields could be vary from empty fields to a tiny bit of uh, stimulation offered for the dogs and then they're being transported back to um, to the cities. Now the transportation again depends, the quality could be really good, could be short or could be really really long and um, what's happening at the moment that measurement around the six square meters is taken from the exercising space the dogs have. Now in an urban um, environment uh, the dogs are being walked in a parks for example but the measurement is being taken from the internal space. And um, what's being prioritized with this particular rule is a space above quality of the care. So for example, if you have an urban daycare who have a small space, they will exercise their dogs outside in the parks. Um, they could offer alternative uh, stimulation, training, um, they could socialise their dog in familiar packs. All this is really essential for dog's development. 
and especially puppies. And the inside areas would be mainly used um, for rest or kind of light play. And you could still offer a light stimulation. You can uh, you can stimulate the dog um, yeah. in a small enclosure. And which is what goes back to your point about it all being about quality. Adita, really good to speak to you. Adita Sikora there, who runs Hairy Hounds in East London. In response to that debate in the Commons, uh, the Minister said that there is a review underway and the government is looking at the way that the, uh, I think regulations brought in, in 2018 uh, are being used and uh, off the back of that, they'll look at whether or not to, to change them. Um, just um, uh, just finally, before we sort of we wind all this up, Anna, are there any other areas where you think the law needs to be needs to be looked at? Because if we do have far more dogs, it's having a social impact on people who are dog owners and people who aren't. Yeah, I mean, for me, what I would love to see is the dog licence being reintroduced and it being, you know, uh, a decent amount of money a year to perhaps prohibit people that aren't totally committed to the, the lifelong commitment that a dog is. I'd love to see as well one central database for all the microchips to be stored in one place. So really copy the DVLA system. It's not difficult. Then basically have more dog wardens around and use the DVLA system as a as a guide to you know if your dog attacks another dog in the park or intimidates somebody or upsets somebody and knocks a child over you you do a speeding awareness course you know and you have points on your, your dog license. That's what I would like to see in place. Uh, Mick's been in touch saying, I own two dogs and I think they should be registered with the council and give a sample of DNA such as hair. Then when poo isn't picked up, the owner can be traced and fined. I'm sorry, we're about to talk about poo again. <laughs> you can put all that on the database. Yeah, well, you could, you know. And hair, you know, it's got all the dog's DNA, you know, forensics and all of that. So not a bad idea. Um, lots of you now are getting in touch about cats, which feels like an entirely separate, <laughs> uh, a separate issue altogether. Uh, do keep your views coming in about uh, cats and dogs. Uh, well, not cats. As you know, I hate cats. Uh, oh. We want to talk about that. Oh, but we're here to talk about dogs, Anna, so let's stay friends on that. Uh, you can text me, <laughs> 8722, start your message with the word times. You can email me, matt at times.radio. Has Britain got too many dogs? Let's have a look at what the poll... Let's have one final look at the poll. Uh, just over 4,000 votes, 50. 53.5% say no, we haven't got enough dogs. And 46.5% uh, say yes, we have. So the country is, is divided on this as it is on everything else. Uh, Anna, really good to see you. Thank you so much for coming in. Uh, that's uh, Anna Webb uh, from the uh, Dogs Life podcast. Thank you, Matt. People can get wherever they, they listen to their podcast. Yeah, it's on all platforms. Thanks so much. Lovely stuff. Good to see you, Anna. And, uh, and good to, to hear from Alexis and uh, Donna and uh, Edith uh, as well. And, uh, and talking about poop. Sorry about that. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.